90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, I'm surviving the first week of classes. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I don't know if you remember, but parking is really crappy during the first week of classes. So uh, It's really awful most of the time on it, almost any campus. Yeah, that's so true. It really is. I feel like the first week of the fall semester, though, you've got all these freshmen. They're super excited to be here, and it takes them a good two or three weeks to become, you know, disenfranchised with higher education in general. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, and actually I've been listening to a, uh, an audiobook called Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Uh-huh. And there was recently on my commute, I listened to a chapter about parking. That's amazing. <laughs> Did it, I mean, so, was it enlightening at all? It was. It was mostly enlightening from the perspective of if you're designing a parking system, this is how it should be working. Oh, so absolutely no one has actually listened to that algorithm then. (laughs) Uh, Apparently the city of San Francisco has, and it involves uh, having adaptive parking rates. Ah, I see. Because you don't want all of the parking spots used, and they came up with a, a number that you wanted, you know, in percent of the parking spots utilized at any time. Anytime you went above that threshold, you needed to crank the rate up. Anytime you went below it, you needed to crank it down, but you had to maintain some empty spots for the system to be efficient. It sounds like an Uber scheme. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of, you know, primetime parking. Yeah, rate. exactly. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I haven't had the chance to read anything this week, including, you know, well, no, I read my rosters, but not much beyond that. <laughs> That's the advantage of having a commute now is audiobooks. Man, I know. Well, like like I was told by a bunch of college kids, podcasts are for old people, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, a lot of people had a lot of time to listen to audiobooks this last weekend. <laughs> Man, I saw some of the pictures. I mean, the traffic was so bad, you decided to abort your eclipse chasing, right? I, I did. And I, I will say I have regrets. Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> but we were in a situation where we couldn't miss Tuesday morning back around where we live. Yeah. Uh, and we were pretty worried because there were some apocalyptic predictions that uh, portions of them came true. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, with respect to traffic, not with respect to the end of the world. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I know several people that were saying in periods of 75 to 90 minutes, they were making it in the tens to low teens miles. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that sounds like normal rush hour, but yeah. <laughs> when you're out in the middle of Wyoming, you don't expect traffic to be quite that bad. Yeah, so it turns out the population of Wyoming doubled or more. Yeah. <laughs> on Monday morning. Oh, uh, yes. This is there's some pretty fantastic statistics about that. Um I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, there were there were lots of concerns about, you know, towns getting huge blocks of porta potties because where are people going to use the restroom? <laughs> we're gonna run out of gas and the gas trucks can't get there because the roads are so congested. There's 
all kinds of logistical challenges that apparently the states had been working on for years. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> this sounds like the last time I went storm chasing, really. You know, I I made that comparison at work earlier <laughs> and said, this is sort of why storm chasing got to be not as much fun. Oh, it's so true. It's so absolutely true, especially when there's only one one big game in town and everybody's trying to chase it. It just turns into, as we've seen in recent years, kind of a deadly pursuit, really. So, Yes, but as you've guessed, we're going to spend this show <laughs> talking about the eclipse that happened on Monday the 21st talk a little bit about eclipses in general, about this one, some of the interesting things that we saw, and then uh, how you can catch the next one. Exactly. So I thought this this would make a good last of our summer short series since it's the first week of classes on many campuses or in, you know, many elementary schools. So either you're celebrating because your kids are back in school or you're sad because you're back in school or both at the same time. <laughs> but it seemed like, um, you know, this week held the Great American Eclipse, and it seems like we should probably talk about that being a geoscience podcast. <laughs> yes. So this eclipse was special because it crossed pretty much northwest to southeast across the continental U.S., exposing a massive number of people. Exactly. And that's, I kept seeing this great American eclipse. And I think that's really funny since it's not like the sun or the moon belong to us, um, even though we might have a legit claim on the moon. <laughs> right. And <laughs> so there were lots of misconceptions I saw come up during this. Like, well, this only happens every 99 years, which isn't true. Mm -hmm. uh, or, well, you know, the next eclipse is going to be on August 21st as well, which is not true. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, there was a uh, lot of there's a lot of weird mathematical things happening. I'm I mean, we've got these things down to we know exactly when they're going to happen, which, you know, we're not the first people to have them all down to when they're going to happen, but I don't understand where all this n information is coming from. Yeah, I mean, we probably are some of the first people to have it down to the second. Yes, that's probably. And sub-second <laughs> timing. <laughs> yes. But yes, there's been a long time where we've actually understood the periodicity of the eclipse, where it's going to go. But this was a special one because not only did it expose so many people, this was a total solar eclipse, which is the holy grail of seeing <laughs> eclipses. Right, exactly. Um, a lot of people were like, yeah, I saw a total solar eclipse when I was little and they're around my age. And I was like, no, no, we didn't. You know, there was lots of partial eclipses. Um, and I'm also sad that I didn't try to travel towards totality. Um, <laughs> I was in my hometown this weekend and I saw a car headed towards Missouri and it said... <laughs> Great American Eclipse, Tulsa to totality. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> but we talked about how many people were traveling. And just like you said, they doubled the po the population of Wyoming. Um, so that band of totality, like John just said, it basically went from Oregon to South Carolina. And the population within that band, which stretched, it was about 70 miles wide, um, was 12 million people. And it was estimated that the population of that entire band basically doubled, if not more than that, during that time. The two and a half minutes we were in totality. Yeah, and <laughs> if you watch the like the Google traffic animations, <laughs> you can see just minutes after totality passes, 
this solid red line of heavy traffic start creeping north and south from the path of totality as it swept across the country. Oh, it's like people leaving the football game five minutes early. Exactly. <laughs> There's still an hour left while it's traversing across. Uh, there were some really cool shots. I mean, you could have watched this solely on social media and been satisfied, I think. Yeah, so we actually did watch several live broadcasts from different parts of the country as totality happened there. Uh, I will say that I listened to some live broadcasts on the radio during totality. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually really cool um, because you could hear when it happened because the crowds were all cheering and things like that behind, you know, these these people who were doing the actual broadcast. It was It was pretty cool. Even though you weren't there, it felt like you were there. Yeah, the folks uh, that did make it that I've talked to say that right when the sun is totally blocked, there's a collective inhale in <laughs> silence for about five seconds and then just cheering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is that is what I heard as well. Uh, how cool was that shot of the International Space Station going across the sun during the partial eclipse? Yeah, the ISS photobombed it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was some serious planning. <laughs> yes, that was really neat. And the fact that you can capture that shot with such a high dynamic range of lighting. Mm -hmm. So many things moving so fast. Yes, yes. And you're able to get that picture, that series of pictures actually was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Did you do any photography besides your iPhone? No, so I actually, I did, you know, iPhone through Eclipse glasses mm -hmm. and I got surprisingly good results for an iPhone looking at something that's a long ways away. Yeah, I was impressed. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I had a lot of friends that were doing Eclipse selfies of like them with it and then the Eclipse glasses showing the Eclipse right next to them. That was pretty funny, I thought. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I would love to see the statistics and I'm sure at some point uh, we will of how many... <laughs> Apple Care claims there were the next day for people yes. that had burned holes in their CCD sensors. Exactly. I don't even understand with how many warnings go on. But, I mean, we had to sign permission slips for our son to go out and participate in Eclipse activities and everything at his school. And I know a lot of other parents that had to as well. So, yeah. Well, this was – it was interesting because we had bought our Eclipse glasses very early and a week before the eclipse, got an email from Amazon that said, we can't verify the origin of the glasses that you bought. We're sorry. Here's your money back. Do not use them. <laughs> and a lot of people got that message. So there was yes. sort of a rush on eclipse glasses because there were a lot of fakes out there. My friend teaches elementary school and her entire school inventory of eclipse glasses that happened to. So they didn't get to even go do anything. And I mean, that's, it's horrible that people manufactured substandard product when it's uh, criminal. a dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's criminal. That whole school didn't get to go see it, and that was so sad for me. That was just yeah. awful. So, And, you know, there's also the, uh, the graph showing searches about the eclipse peaking right about totality, and then a second bump in searches coming up that's my eyes hurt. <gasps> Oh, no. From Google. Uh, so there's... <laughs> and, you know, there are various versions of that going around. Some of them, I think, are probably uh, XKCD-ified a yeah, little bit yeah, in terms of scaling true. and data. Um, uh, but, yeah, it was... 
it was a pretty big event. And of course, social media had a large role in making sure people were aware of it uh, and let people that were clouded over watch it, which was a big concern because some of the models were forecasting significant amounts of cloud cover. Right, exactly. That's such a bummer. I can't imagine having something planned for so long and then get it ruined by just some random cloud deciding to hang out for two and a half minutes over the sun. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, so what I ended up doing was writing code and making some animations. Not surprising. (laughs) And I'll link them in the show notes, but ended up making an animation pulling every ASOS weather station that I could get a hold of in the U.S. and plotting a time series of temperature change. Oh, awesome. So you could watch the cold temperature pulse propagate and then also plotting some uh, imagery from the new go 16 satellite where you could actually watch the shadow those were pretty impressive the satellite images i thought showing the shadow as it traversed across the u.s that was super cool yeah and even here where at at my house we just got down to about uh, 95 percent of coverage or show or Mm -hmm. so and uh, we had a 10 degree temperature drop wow Man, it was weird. Yeah, we were at like 85%, I think. And it was a strange feeling. Um, I looked at a bunch of the um, mediagrams, so the mesonet station across Oklahoma. So up in the northern part, it was at about 90% totality as well. And there was, you know, seven, eight degrees, and the winds would even calm down. Mm -hmm. You stopped getting mixing, which we're actually going to talk about later on in the fun paper a little bit. Yeah, there are people that were using the Eclipse as an opportunity to take weather models like the HER, which is a high-resolution rapid refresh model, and they were checking how well their solar radiation parameterizations worked because, you know, in the model, you can turn off the sun and see how the system responds and then turn it back on. Mm -hmm. And so they did that in the model, and then there was an Eclipse that did that with nature. Oh, nothing. And it was a great way to check radiation parameterizations. (laughs) Nothing like ground truthing. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) that is great um so i mean we as humans have been messing with eclipses in that manner basically since we can even talk about humanity which we're going to get to here in a little bit but i mean it's really a cool mathematics of nature that we even get to see total solar eclipses right because the sun is huge and the moon is small, about 400 times smaller. Right. And it just so happens that the moon is 400 times closer to us than our sun is. So not only do we blot out the sun with the moon during eclipse, but we also get to see the cool corona portions and stuff like Bailey's beads, which we'll talk about, that occur when the sun shines through those rough edges of the lunar craters. We get to see that perfectly right now just because of this awesome fact that it's 400 times smaller, but it's also 400 times closer, and they match up exquisitely. Right. So like you said, it didn't have to be this way. This is just a quirk that we are able to see right now Mm -hmm. and in fact if you were describing how much area in the sky these things take up you know talking about the diameter of the sun or the diameter of the moon doesn't really do a lot of good if you talk about diameter distance ratios you're starting to get somewhere Mm -hmm. Uh, but we would actually look at something called the solid angle okay and i don't know if you remember that from atmospheric radiation but we're looking at (laughs) it's 
it's a measure of how much of the sky right. is taken up by these objects. And it just so happens that now they perfectly match so that when the moon crosses between the earth and the sun, a shadow gets cast on the earth. And that's what we saw. And like you said, we get to see all these cool phenomena around the outer edge. That's really, um, that's really cool to think that like this, both this place, but this time period makes that happen. Like how unique is that, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it is a pretty unique set of circumstances. And one of the more interesting phenomena, I think you had already mentioned, Bailey's beads, which is that the the moon is not a perfect sphere as we would prefer to model it. Yes. And <laughs> so you, you actually get little peaks of sun in those craters and that topography on the moon. Uh, so you actually get kind of a rough edge to the shadow. I think that's really neat. Yeah, that's really neat. I did look up a lot of pictures of that because I just had eclipse glasses and we were at 85%, like I said. So you had to be in totality to be able to see that sort of thing. Which in Oklahoma will actually be part of the next swath of totality for the eclipse that occurs on April 8th, 2024. Right. So for the folks that are saying, well, it's going to be another 99 years, that's wrong. It's only another seven. Yes. <laughs> and we actually have a total or partial eclipse for the next X number of years for a long time, discounting except for 2018 and like 2021 or something like that. So these aren't as, you know, totality is rare for you to get to be there. Um, I read this on wired.com actually. The average... Any point on Earth gets to see totality is every 375 years. Right. And considering that the U.S. is a relatively big country and other countries like Australia, uh, there are several paths that are crossing them. In fact, there are a couple crossing Australia in the next decade or two as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, I pulled this stat too. So luckily for those of you in Carbondale, Illinois, if you're there at the university, um, they were in the path of both this year's eclipse and the one in 2024. So I figured if you're an undergrad there now, you should stay on for grad school just because then you just have to walk outside and you get to see two total eclipses of the sun <laughs> in seven I mean, years. The people, the people that are trying to get home from this one might still be there. Yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's crazy. I'm going to have to look at that Google traffic map. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was definitely watching it and just watching the snake of five mile an hour traffic <laughs> crawl back towards oh. the Colorado border. Um, Man. So, you know, you said that we won't always have eclipses because it's this unique, our total eclipses, because this unique combination of time and distance and in fact we are slowly losing the moon at centimeters per year mm -hmm. and that means that in another 650 million years which is a blink of the eye geologically no more total solar eclipses it really is i'd never thought about this it's so sad <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that's crazy and so for this blink of an eye geologically we get to see this because i mean the moon was closer to us so therefore you wouldn't have seen these cool bailey speeds not that they would have been called that back then um or even you know a lot of the portions of the corona that you can see now because it would have right, been it just would have been totally blocked out yeah which is even creepier to think that you would really be in total darkness at, the, yes. at that time yeah <laughs> creepy but like why do we get so excited as humans during these total eclipses of the sun i mean we have lunar eclipses all the time those are no one cares about those 
They're less interesting. And so lunar eclipse is, of course, when the Earth crosses between the sun and the moon, and it casts a shadow on the moon. Right. But you can still see the moon. I mean, it turns red, which is kind of scary, but, you know. Yeah, and gets some little bites out of it. But it's not as interesting of an event, really. Right, exactly. Because every day you've got the sun, and, I mean, you've got new moons, and so... You're used to not seeing a moon in the sky, and eclipses isn't that big a deal. But um, these solar eclipses are really, we get really hyped up about them as humans. And so I think they play a really prominent role in sort of mythologies, but also in scientific discoveries, too. Um, but here in the U.S., this great American eclipse, still think it's hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the last time the path of totality touched any portion of the continental U.S. was a long time ago, and it was in February of 1979. So before my time, just barely, and way before your time, right? Well, <laughs> not way before. Yeah, okay. Still less than a decade. So uh, <laughs> I just had to get that jab in there before you teased me about it. <laughs> it's true. So, uh, you know, I, I do find this interesting because I love natural phenomena and i like seeing and experiencing them understanding them on a mathematical level and then getting to see that in real life Mm -hmm. i am shocked at how many people describe this as almost a religious experience oh Uh, yes (laughs) i yeah i i mean i obviously wasn't there this time but to me, it's a very fascinating natural phenomenon. I would probably be geeking out uh, during the whole thing, of course. But <laughs> some of the announcers were you know, like tearing up, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a strange reaction. I don't know if this comes from somewhere way back in evolutionary history or what. I I thought that same thing, and I, I'm really glad that I listened to it on the radio because you could really feel that. I mean, you can when you see people crying too, but you could feel the sort of I don't I don't know the sacredness of the event which was really interesting and it really harkens back to a lot of the things that I teach in native science right these natural phenomenon that are recurring I mean eclipses haven't have always happened as long as humanity has been here you know they're treated with this reverential respect and it's got a lot of mythology surrounding it, but it still describes the actual scientific phenomenon that's going on, you know? So it's this is really a primo native science example of something in that's described differently um, by different cultures, but always with this really weird reverential feeling and, just like you said, religious feeling to the event. Well, and if you, know, if you look at it from a mathematical standpoint, to me that's more beautiful and less emotional but you know my calc three teacher would wax yes that was a moon pun endlessly (laughs) about the beauty of mathematics and i mean this is it right like this is perfectly it i think Uh, yeah and you know you you really think back about it you said eclipses have happened for as long as humanity have happened longer than that as well well. yes yeah (laughs) and on any other time period this was a dark shadow that crossed the earth and was maybe noticed by the animals in terms of uh, yeah. uh, starting their nightly uh, procedures, but then it just went on. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's a, a slightly less romantic and more analytical <laughs> view of it. <laughs> Nonetheless beautiful, though. Yeah. And there are, of course, 
other eclipses on other planets, uh, you know, yeah. planet going between its moons and that kind of thing. But of course, this is the one that we care about because we're here to see it. Right, exactly. Um, so I got interested in sort of having listened to it on the radio and just like you said, everyone talking about these really strong feelings about it. You know, what were some sort of highlights of eclipses during history? And this is by far not a comprehensive list. This was supposed to be a summer short, so I just picked a few. I know there might be better ones. These are the ones I picked. <laughs> um, and so the first one that's kind of documented, and I say that with air quotes around documented, was uh, November of 3340 BCE, right? And this happened in um, Laugh Crew, Ireland. I just took that spelling for you. I didn't know if you'd know how to pronounce it, so I took that hit. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate that. So, uh, <laughs> no and problem. This was actually documented by petroglyphs. Right. And so there's these series of these circular and spiral petroglyphs, and they all line up with these different eclipse paths, and that's the oldest one. And to add even more intrigue into it, there are a lot of charred human remains found also in the middle of these petroglyphs. Yeah, little known fact, in uh, 3300 BC, there was also a giant orbiting magnifying glass. <laughs> Oh, man, you've been waiting to do that one, didn't you? <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so, no, they are, th this goes back to it being a, a, a religious type of experience. Mm -hmm. right. And, you know, so then we can go to China and skip forward a little bit to October of 2134 BC. <laughs> and the Chinese have the mythology of the dragon eating the, the sun. And this, you know, the sun is associated with the emperor, so this was a big deal. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so it was really important to be able to predict these eclipses. And so people would be prepared to slay the dragon. And they did this by, during the eclipse, they'd go outside and bang together pots and pans. And, you know, the equivalent to walking outside and shooting your AK up in the air is what I imagined. Or in my neighborhood, <laughs> yeah, shooting your pistols up in the air on New Year's. Um, to, to drive the dragon away, which it always worked, Right. Um, right. And so the Royal Astronomers are supposed to let people know. And this one is pretty funny. And I found this in a whole bunch of different areas. <laughs> and NASA even refers to these guys as the drunk astronomers. Um, so there were <laughs> two Royal Astronomers, Ho and He, who were too drunk to predict this eclipse. And so it caught everybody off guard. And the Emperor was so angry that he wasn't protected that he beheaded them. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's no laughing matter, but it is pretty funny. <laughs> this is like everyone can imagine, you know, the, your lab mate or your office mate that this would have happened to, right? <laughs> Don't drink and drive. That has been long been the advice of calculus <laughs> teachers. Exactly. <laughs> oh, so that was a good one. <laughs> yes. And so, but these eclipses often been seen as signs from the gods because it does have all of this mythology attached to it. And it's even played a role in wars. I was impressed at how many wars were stopped because of eclipses. Um, and so in 585 BC, the Lydians and the Medes were fighting over Anatolia, which is present-day Turkey, uh, and an eclipse occurred during the battle, and both sides took it as a sign that the gods wanted them to stop fighting. And so the solar eclipse ended that war. Um, a little less, <laughs> a little more stealthily in 413 BC, um, the eclipse 
played a hand in winning the Peloponnesian War, and this was the war, of course, between Athens and Sparta. And um, the Spartans took advantage of the Athens fear of the eclipse, basically, to take over and end Athenian rule throughout the area. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was and... a little that was a little more sneaky, you know, while they're sitting there talking about their religious <laughs> beliefs, the Spartans come in and they're like, no, we're going to take you down anyway. <laughs> right. And the eclipse is even described in biblical times. And it turns out that it goes along with the death of many historical figures right exactly um and so it was described in the bible that there was a darkening of the sky after jesus's death and there was an eclipse in both 29 and 33 a.d so that's sort of part of the you know how long was jesus where do we start you know our calendar that we use now which basically starts at the beginning of his birth um so that was documented in the bible as well um so that's very interesting um just like you said, John, lots of historical figures, births, deaths, all this go along with them. I just thought those were some interesting ones from history that I hadn't really heard about, especially the drunk astronomers. <laughs> yes, I, I like that one. Yeah. And, you know, we've mentioned that the eclipse plays a scientific role as well. And that goes all the way back to 334 AD as well. Mm-hmm. And so as we talked about, we're just perfectly aligned that the moon covers up the sun just enough and we can see the outer parts of the sun's atmosphere and everything. And so what you just said, 334 AD, was when Firmicus first reported seeing solar prominences. Now, he didn't know what they were. He just talked about what they looked like. So these things shooting off of the sun, but he didn't even know they were from the sun. He actually first thought they were coming from the moon itself. Right. And then 600 years later, uh, roughly in 968 AD, we got the first very clear description of the solar corona in Constantinople. Mm -hmm. So again, not called by name, but described by astronomers. And sort of this keeps going on. We keep adding more and more until um, 1724, when we have Spanish astronomer Jose Joaquin de Ferrer, and he correctly well, he named the corona, and he also correctly attributed it to the sun and not to the moon, as was previously thought. So that's a, that's a long time, I thought, that we hadn't figured that out yet. Yeah, and then we go on almost another 100 years until 1806, when Kepler guessed that the corona is light reflected from material surrounding the sun. Mm -hmm. Yep, and the 1800s were pretty big for for solar eclipses um in 1836 francis bailey of the so named bailey's beads described those beads of light that are seen through the lunar valleys during the total during a total eclipse that he saw in scotland so that's been around since then right and then perhaps the most famous eclipse science that <laughs> happened was in 1919 where eddington sir arthur eddington and his co-workers observed the bending of starlight by gravity and so they therefore confirmed einstein's theory of relativity right i thought what was interesting about that eclipse is that it was totality lasted six minutes and 51 seconds it was a long time. yeah that's good 
That's some good geometry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you have a lot of time to do stuff um, in that amount of time. And obviously all subsequent eclipses also saw this, you know, further reinforcing the theories of relativity. So there's one more I wanted to mention. I didn't write this in the show notes, but it was a pretty funny and awful story. And it happened in the 16th century. And it was when Christopher Columbus and his crew were in Jamaica, right? And they were being basically served by the Jamaicans. They were feeding their crews and everything. And the Jamaicans started to get really mad when people in the crew started to steal from them. So they said, we're not going to, we're not doing anything for you anymore. And Christopher Columbus had an almanac with him, and he knew that in a couple of weeks there was a total solar eclipse. And so he basically tricked the indigenous people and said, you know, the gods are going to get angry with you. You'll see, because you're not taking care of us. And then this solar eclipse happened, and then the Jamaicans started caring for their crew again. I thought that was awful. That is. <laughs> like, that, that is, is pure exploitation. Exactly. That is not, that's not okay, Chris. Not okay. I mean, a lot of stuff he did was not okay, but it's he, true. Yeah, and yeah. You know, the science continues to this day. So every time there's an eclipse, there's a science team or multiple science teams that accompany it, studying different things. And this year, there were, I, I know, of several like funded scientific missions. There were also groups of people like ham radio operators that were studying propagation changes during Ooh, the eclipse. Awesome. Uh, there were students around the country that were releasing many, many weather balloons at different points during the eclipse. That's cool. To get a time series of what happened to the upper atmosphere. Uh, there was, I, I saw multiple people, granted I've probably have a somewhat biased subset <laughs> of people I follow on social media that had taken instrumentation out into the field with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I had seen that as well. Uh, I wonder if this is like the most, this has to be the most photographed solar eclipse. I think so because you can't open up any form of social media this week without being inundated <laughs> with photos. Uh, I, I will say I did laugh at the first picture i saw that was the eclipse gum packets over somebody's eyes but after that it was got really old <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, and you know there was a lot of misinformation going out and there's even been a lot of fake photos of this eclipse circulating which uh, i don't understand uh, because uh, there's uh, so many good ones oh yeah this is where you think man humans like yeah, maybe eclipses are actually very Darwinian, right? <laughs> Survival of the fittest <laughs> sort of thing. I don't know. Just a thought. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is the first week of school. I'm already jaded, so. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a very special event that a lot of people got to enjoy. It was interesting to see so many people get excited about science. It was, exactly. Like, even with all the traffic and even with all the you know, inundation of this everywhere. I think it's really great because just like you said, it's people getting excited about science and that's, we couldn't ask for anything more than that. Exactly. So I would say I'm planning on going to the next one and I'm planning mm -hmm. on getting hotel rooms uh, before <laughs> and after so I don't have to deal with traffic on any day. Exactly. I have no doubts that there are places that have already been called to book ahead of time. Most places won't book more than a year in advance. I know, but so. I bet there's been calls. <laughs> there probably has. Yep. Uh, 
And we'll see. Who knows? By then, I might have gotten around to making some kind of self-driving telescope that will make a nice high-quality video or something. Excellent. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. I've got a few years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in an effort to keep this short, which our summer shorts have not been <laughs> this summer, we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Man, this kid's really putting a damper on my cowbell abilities, so I really appreciate <laughs> that uh, Steve may do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so this fun paper, I actually saw it come up in Nature Geoscience, and within a couple hours of it coming out, listener Lucas had already tweeted it to us as well. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this paper was super great, um, and I assume that... I assume that your current job is going to lean you more towards these papers in the future. Um. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't seek this out. It was still in Nature Geoscience. That's true, but uh, still. <laughs> and it is called Snow Precipitation on Mars Driven by Cloud-Induced Nighttime Convection. Ah, awesome. By awesome. Spiga et al. Uh, and, it's, and it's not the first fun paper where we've talked about precipitation on other planets or moons of planets. No, not at all. And the interesting thing here is convection. Yes. But it's like... And it's not normal convection no, like exactly. we're used to here on Earth. <laughs> no, that's what I, I started reading. I was like, wait a minute, this is like inverse convection, which is super neat, right? Right. So if you're looking at a storm here on Earth, you've got a planet. You have the sun shining down the planet when it's not being eclipsed by the moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're heating the ground surface right. that warms air near the ground. That warm air becomes more buoyant than the air around it, and it rises up until it eventually condenses, and that creates convection, you get clouds and storms and so on. Right. Which to is... summarize meteorology in 20 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> hey, I paid a lot more than that. More than that to learn uh, <laughs> just about that. Um, so it turns out in Mars, it's a little bit of a different process. Um, but we've long known that Mars has had these water ice clouds, right? But I guess we've not really known a lot about how they influence the weather on Mars. So Right. And we know that these are seasonal and diurnal. So -hmm. there's daily and seasonal cycles to them. And we knew that their infrared absorption patterns were going to be somewhat important, uh, but nobody had really been able to successfully determine what role they played in controlling the weather. Right. And so we knew that there was snow that got precipitated on Mars, but we just thought it was by precipitated by sedimentation which i think is great that you know we actually use a geology word for this meteorological process (laughs) (laughs) well you know and i mean the sedimentation rate really you look at it for small like tens of microns Mm -hmm. little ice particles it's about 0.01 meters a second Mm -hmm. which if you think about dropping sand in water it's yeah you're looking at comparable velocities yeah yeah it's true um, so I guess they started to look at why, you know, look at these clouds and see if there's any relationship between these clouds and sort of the snow. And they come up with this great model 
yeah, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that matches some LIDAR observations by the Phoenix Lander pretty well. Um, and they determined that there's basically ice microbursts that happen on Mars, and they happen at night. And the ice microbursts uh-huh. sounds like a sci-fi Doesn't it? movie title. <laughs> so I used to work on microbursts, so I was really excited about this paper. Microbursts and, here on Earth. but <laughs> Right. And so what ends up happening is you get intense radiative cooling at the top of these water ice clouds. Makes and sense. as it cools, the air becomes denser. And less buoyant. And yeah. so instead of air at the surface becoming warmed and more buoyant and accelerating upward, this becomes less buoyant <laughs> and starts accelerating downward. Right. Which is basically the definition of a microburst. So, and, and it go. actually can set up convective cells, which is really neat because as right. it's going down, it's displacing air that shoots out to the side and then goes back up to find its equilibrium level. You're right, exactly. And it's the exact opposite as we think of on Earth because on Earth you have to have the sun and all this daytime heating to get mixing of the atmosphere, which creates all this, you know, convection and turbulence and everything like that. And just like John said, it's the exact opposite. And by the cooling, radiative cooling of these clouds at night, that's when you get the most mixing of Mars's atmosphere. Totally opposite. And this is, yeah, and this is the only way to explain deep mixing that we observe on Mars. And, I mean, this is really deep. We're talking like 8 to 10 kilometers of mixing. That's like our entire troposphere, like our entire area where yeah, weather Yeah, we're not happens. talking, you know, boundary layer of kilometer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <and laughs> what's really cool about this is, did you note the radio occultation I did. I thought you would be super excited, even though there were no, um, there were lasers, but even though there were no, you know, high, high speed cameras, I thought the occultation would really trip your trigger on this. (laughs) Oh yeah. So, uh, I've been a fan of occultation since (laughs) probably, I think the first time I heard about it and looked at some occultation data was probably 2008. Oh. 2007 or 8. You're pushing your glasses up on your nose right now, right? And uh, (laughs) the the idea is you have a couple of satellites going around a planet. On Earth, we can use the GPS network. And by how the radio signal between those two satellites is bent and distorted and warped, we can back out temperature and humidity profiles of the atmosphere. That's cool. Uh, it's sort of like a you know, integrated effect along a ray path. Imagine a seismic wave traveling through the ground, and then we mm-hmm. model what the ground had to be like for the wave to arrive, how it did. Right. Yep. Except okay. here we have a controlled source, so that's even better. I know. <laughs> and uh, we can do this, as it turns out, between the Mars Global Surveyor and the Mars Reconnaissance, Reconnaissance Orbiter when they're in the right geometry. Which is great, too, because then you don't have to, you know, spend all that time dropping radio sounds into the Martian atmosphere. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, what you end up doing is you can measure the, or estimate the dew point and the temperature. And then we're really looking at profiles of something called equivalent potential temperature. Or in this case, they just did a potential temperature man i will tell you that i forgot about this variable until i read this i was like oh oh there it is okay because <laughs> i remember some pretty nasty derivations involving it but they don't do anything like that they're just looking at potential temperature <laughs> no pretty much what you're trying to do with potential temperature is take out adiabatic effects right 
Exactly. So things like adiabatic cooling. Think of this as a, uh, it, it, take the potential temperature thing out of it because temperature is a confusing way to look at it. Uh, think of it as a plot of entropy with height. Okay, exactly. So disorder. And so if you're mm-hmm. looking at something that is the same potential temperature with height, it is by nature convectively stable. Right. So you don't the potential have... potential temperature is decreasing with height. It's also going to be stable unless it decreases too fast. Yes. <laughs> and you get... And then you get what happens inversion. on Mars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so this is... I thought... I hate to say it. I thought this was really cool how their um, modeling matched these potential temperature profiles that they saw due to these radio occultations. Um, I was pretty impressed. This is really good. And so what they did was they looked at um, the Phoenix LIDAR observations and compared them to what they had come up with these with these radio occultations. And they used carried out turbulence-resolving large eddy simulations, which are really scary, um, <laughs> <laughs> and tried to use the same radiative microphysical transport schemes as in these larger-scale simulations to determine if these ice... I love it. I love it so much. Ice microburst <laughs> were actually <laughs> happening. And, I mean, it matches the data really well. And there's some really cool... I really liked the relatively few number of figures in here because it's a nature paper. Um, but they were very illustrative of the atmospheric dynamics occurring. Yes. Figure 2B is probably my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one I have pulled up right now. <laughs> yeah. And so figure 2B is what we would call a quiver plot where you see arrows that represent the motion. The length of them represents the magnitude, the vector magnitude. And you can see this really nice circulation that Mm -hmm. develops yeah exactly and i mean it turns out that a lot of this stuff isn't actually reaching the ground which isn't surprising right and that sort of was what the lidar was indicating and these ice crystals look like virga or those sort of swoopy things that you see coming out of clouds um here on earth it's usually rain that evaporates before it hits the ground and so they also see this you can see this in this quiver plot and you can also see it in uh, some of their other model simulations that this stuff gets pretty close to the ground and it's got a really good um, measure of the size of the ice crystals too. Yeah. And you know, the only reason that this snow could reach the ground at night, the reason these are nighttime uh, snow events is because it's got to be a lot cooler because as you said, they don't make it, but to within a few kilometers of the ground normally. And that's just because of the adiabatic warming. So as you go down, you're going to higher pressures and you must warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. This is this is a really good physics paper. I was very excited about it. <laughs> it's got thermodynamics. It's got lasers. It's on another planet. <laughs> uh, it's got occultation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a pretty cool one. And really, their modeled uh, response to the Virga and the fall streaks that Phoenix observed are pretty similar. Yeah, they are. They're shockingly similar. And it's it's not that it's simple, but it seems like it's, again, what I would describe, it's very elegant. It's an elegant explanation for this. And as they say, this precipitation on Mars by these convective microbursts, which I think is feels like a misnomer to call them convective microbursts, um, is more straightforward than what we previously thought um, to explain this snow by sedimentation. 
Exactly. And it also has important implications for water on Mars, the, the water cycle and the amount of water that's going to persist in the atmosphere. Right, exactly. I made a note in here because they talk about um, the potential ability of these water ice clouds to confine water in parts of the water cycle on Mars, but they don't say that. They say confined water below the return branch of the Sostitial Hadley cell on Mars. <laughs> Right. I thought that was a little jargony. <laughs> I, I would say so. Yeah. And so if you think about uh, the Hadley cell, mm-hmm. which this has been a little while for me. <laughs> well, I'm teaching payload climate, so I've had to read this recently. Well, I'm supposed to read it recently. <laughs> but right. I mean, so, what they're saying is, you know, on, on Earth, we've got these three big cells, I guess you could say, per hemisphere that are cycling water. And on Mars, you know, you're going to get a lot of escape of this water vapor to space. And so how do you take that into account when you're trying to um, talk about the water cycle and how much water is available for these clouds and everything like that? We don't have a good measure of that yet. Right. And so on Earth, you get equatorial heating. Air rises there, gets transported a little ways towards the poles and then actually sinks mm-hmm. and that's the Hadley cell. And right. So if you can trap water underneath that return branch, how much of it are you going to loft high into the atmosphere and how much is going to be lost to space? Right. How much of it is going to stay low to the planet? And one thing I'm not sure they didn't discuss in this paper, but on earth we have the Hadley cell at the equator, the feral cell at the mid latitudes and mm-hmm. then a polar, the polar cell. Cells. Yep. I'm wondering if Mars has the same three, given that it's, similar in size or if the difference in mean atmospheric uh, composition means that maybe you only have one or two dominating features yeah i I think mars has less than we do that's what i remember i would not be surprised if you know there were uh, a larger spanning cell because we'd have to do some math to see what what the Coriolis deflection looks like and all this fun stuff that causes the multiple cell structure here on Earth. Right, exactly. And I will say that I'm impressed. Did you remember feral cell? I never remember that one. You know, that was on a quiz in like Meteorology 101 <laughs> eons ago, and I missed it. Oh, beautiful. So that's one of those See? things that you don't forget. See, kids? <laughs> that's why it's important and also a good example of when you do something wrong you remember it more than when you do something right exactly yeah so this was a really interesting modeling observation physics paper yes i loved it it was super good super so good. thanks lucas for noting it and tweeting it to us we have lots of awesome listeners that apparently watch the scientific literature now hopefully because of awesome. fun paper fridays hopefully <laughs> so if you have a fun paper that you would like to hear us talk about or would like to talk with us about your eclipse experience or martian convection predictions <laughs> we would love to hear it shannon how can they get a hold of us uh well like lucas did you can tweet us at don't panic geo uh you can also email us anytime show at don't panic geocast.com uh, John is on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we're always in our swung.rock Slack channel and the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, 
Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.